Welcome everybody to the Anything But Typical podcast. And in true fashion, we've got an Anything But Typical entrepreneur, Mac Lackey. And it's been really fun to watch his journey because I got to be uh, on a dot-com roundtable 20 years ago <laughs> when we were both running dot-coms. Wow. And so I can't wait for you to hear more of his story. He's had far more success than I have. So he's the one that you want to pay attention to. So Mac, here's the thing. Before we get into all the accolades and all the cool things that you've done, um, I want to start with more of a heartbeat question. And so here's the scenario. Let's pretend that you are in a post-COVID environment and you're back at your favorite sporting venue, watching one of your favorite sporting teams, and I'm assuming it's like somebody like FC Barcelona. 100%, yeah. <laughs> and, and you are walking uh, with a handful of uh, popcorn and Coke or something like that, a beverage of your choice, and you're going back to your seats and, and you hear somebody uh, talking about you, hey, that's Mac Lackey. What would you, and if they knew you, what would you like them to be saying about you? Well, first and foremost, I, yeah, if they said it with that tone, I would be really thrilled. Hey, that's Mac Lackey. <laughs> like that means something to somebody. <laughs> that's, that, that alone would make me happy. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, my, my hope is that Yes, yeah, somebody would say, uh, you know, I'm a good guy. They would maybe they would focus on the things that that really do matter to me. You know, I'm I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, those things are you know more important than anything to me. And and then maybe you know something about my my journey and probably appropriate for your podcast and audience. You know, I, I think what I would hope is people would say he's had a uh, a pretty unique path that has been positive you know he's affected lives he's done things differently he's helped people um you know if, th if people were saying things like that it would make me smile make me happy so i love it that's another reason why you're on this show <laughs> <laughs> yeah you unique and successful path is is certainly certainly part of your dna at this point so to give everybody a quick intro if you haven't heard mac before max had six successful exits including multiple eight-figure exits and currently he's the founder of Exit DNA and The Phoenix. We're gonna dive into both of those, but it's really wrapping around helping entrepreneurs and founders pursue what matters to them so they can live a more meaningful and rewarding life. And you already heard that in his first a uh, answer, talking about being a husband and a, a parent and having that be at the forefront. So we're gonna dive into the why behind some of, uh, of your journey as well, Matt. But I wanna start at, um, the reason or purpose of you getting into entrepreneurship in the first place, what drew you to that, to starting and running businesses? Yeah, it's funny. My, my, my life is kind of in hindsight, you know, I see these two giant buckets, you know, there was the first part of my life was truly all about soccer. It's all I wanted to do as a, as a kid. I wanted to play in college. I wanted to play at the highest level. I wanted to be a professional, all those kind of things like dominated my my thinking, my goals. Um, and, you know, thankfully I, I checked off a lot of the, the boxes, you know, along the way from a soccer standpoint. And, 
I got to the end of that process after, you know, post-college kind of achieved what I wanted, played professionally. And, and I really didn't have any skills. I mean, candidly, you know, I, I, I wasn't qualified to do anything. Uh, I was a psychology major. I didn't have an advanced degree in psychology. So long story short, I, I, because of a friend I met through soccer, I joined a small software startup that was in the educational space. And I was hired effectively as an intern. I mean, I got paid, but it was, I could not have been more low level, but I, I really like day one fell in love with this notion of, you know, you do something different every day. You know, one day you're licking stamps and making phone calls. The next day you're trying to figure out how to write code. And the next day you're figuring out how to do cold calls. And I just fell in love with that energy. And so, um, I really love the concept, but there was a really early experience at that company where the president called everybody into the conference room for a strategy meeting. And when, you know, I'm super young and inexperienced and I'm so excited to like run in the conference room and tell them, you know, all my strategic thoughts and kind of holds his hand up and was basically like, Mac, if you could just stay and answer the phones. And I, and I was like, it, it felt like such a strong punch to the nose and it was very fair. I mean, you know, honestly, I had nothing to contribute. But in my mind, I was like, man, I, you know, this guy doesn't even care what I think. So from that second, I was like, I am going to really struggle to work for somebody. And I, uh, I shortly thereafter convinced um, an engineer who was a good friend, a self-taught engineer, really talented guy. He and I went out on our own and started our first company, really not knowing a lot better um, what was going to be involved in terms of risk and challenge. But we started our first business in kind of, as, as uh, Gary was noting, you know, web 1.0. I started my first internet company in the first quarter of 1995, shortly after Netscape launched its browser. And so I was really early um, in a space that um, it was really hard. I mean, you know, looking backwards, it was such a cool experience. But if I think about the day-to-day -day life, it was, it was really tough kind of garage startup grind, but it was such a, enjoyable, rewarding process. And then when we sold the company, uh, it was such a life changing experience that I was, you know, I was kind of done at that point. There was no turning back. Yeah. So sometimes being a little naive and not knowing all the, all the risk and all the work it's going to take sometimes for that first venture is not, not necessarily a bad thing. Right? You it hear hurts is bliss. That's right. <laughs> yeah. People that wouldn't have gone into, into owning a business if they had known all the risks associated with it. So very true get to that first exit, which I definitely want to talk about. Talk through starting that first business and trying to grow it, especially being as green as you were from it, right? You didn't, it's not even like you studied business in school. So you were extremely green. So talk us through that growth process of that first company. Yeah, I, you know, I would like to say, I mean, my, my business partners, the people around me were, were really smart. Um, you know, we were, we were confident we would figure it out. We were super motivated, but you know, the, the smartest thing that we did for sure. And this started from day one and it, it didn't end until, you know, we sold the company is we really fought to hire people better than us. And, and we sacrificed candidly. Um, you know, my business partner and I would meet at the little coffee shop, gosh, it felt like every week and literally be close to tears. Like, Hey, can you go one more week without getting paid so we can hire an engineer? And that process of bringing on really talented people, not only, you know, helped us move quicker because they were already skilled in whatever we were hiring them for, 
engineering, design, whatever. But it had this like amplification effect of every new smart person you put into the company. It's like, you know, that age old one plus one equals nine kind of thing. It's like just the whole intelligence uh, of the, the business itself was just amplifying every time we did that. And so, you know, we took a lot of risk. We uh, weren't afraid to make mistakes. We didn't have a lot of ego associated with stuff. We just were really trying to figure it out as we went along. And um, because, you know, we were early, the mistakes weren't fatal. Um, there weren't a lot of people doing what we were doing. So we were some of the, you know, really early adopters and early pioneers in the space. And so I think those all, all those things contributed. But the other big thing is I've been a life student of, of learning. You know, I, I was a voracious reader, even though I didn't take one business class, one entrepreneurship class, one computer class, you know, up until that point. But I was reading, you know, a book a week and devouring lessons and learning from others and anything I could get to like move quicker and learn faster. So that became for me, a, a you know, an early critical success factor. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Mac, talk about, um, you know, that early, that first one that you did now, was that internet soccer? No, it was a company called in touch interactive. It was before internet soccer. Okay, cool. Cause I met you with internet soccer.com. Yeah. So, um, with with in touch and then even subsequent ones after that, um, talk about the how how did you delineate roles and responsibilities? Kind of your sweet spot versus somebody complementary? Because I've heard I've been burned so badly by partnerships, and yet I still truly believe in them. My wife, not so much, but uh, <laughs> aside from this marriage, which yeah. God, she's still there. <laughs> um, I do believe that two heads, complementary skill sets, common heartbeat are way better. So talk to us about how did you guys figure that out at such a, a young age, actually, and early on? And then what have you done since then in evaluating complementary skill sets and the, the pluses and minuses of partnerships? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because I you know, I could try to look back and say I was, you know, especially brilliant or gifted, neither of which was true. I, I do think in some ways, you know, I was really, really fortunate and lucky that some of my early business partnerships were good human dynamics. You know, I mean, I have had a longtime business partner who we've been very successful together, not only because of like business or sort of traditional views of success, but we don't argue, you know, we, we really actually get along and we've <laughs> remained friends. But, um, you know, when I look back, I think a lot of it comes down to, it really was a um, sort of a self-deprecating, humbling process where we would say, like, I would tell you right now, and I've said this a million times throughout my life and career, there are a few things, I mean, a handful, five or less that I think I do well if it is outside of those things, I'm the first to say, I'm not good at it. Somebody's got to be better than me. And so having a really, really critical view of your strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I happen to be fortunate to have partners that were the same way. They're like, Mac, you're really pretty good at this part. And I'm not. So you, you do that and, and vice versa. We just were really candid and vocal about strengths and weaknesses. Um, and 
so I think, you know, some of it was certainly luck, good partners, good humans that I happened to partner up with early on in business. But a lot of it was just being really brutally honest about strengths and weaknesses, particularly weaknesses, because people have a tendency to want to, you know, kind of glaze over and, and hide their weaknesses. And I'm always like, hey, I'm not good at it. Honestly, I don't want to do it. I'm not good at it. Someone else do it. And so I think that's actually served us really well so that there's not a lot of overlap. And if there is overlap, you can have a very direct, candid conversation about it versus everybody kind of thinking they're good at doing a lot, lots of things. We try to narrow our focus very quickly. Yeah, and it, it takes a lot to be able to set ego aside, especially when you're, when you're working hand-in-hand hand with people in a business. So um, in any of your, your ventures, uh, let's talk about the past ones, right? Any of those exits that you've had, were there any um, crossroads, I guess, would be the right way to talk about it, where you and a partner or you and an employee were not seeing eye to eye on, hey, this is what you're good at, this is what you're bad at, and this is how we're going to move forward? And if so, how would you handle it? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's why I kind of chuckled at the, the initial question is, you know, I, I have been generally blessed and fortunate and lucky and plenty of things, but I also would say, the single worst thing that has ever happened in my journey is a bad partnership and, and it, it, it blew up and destroyed, you know, a ton of value and a, you know, just a lot of emotional and financial friction. I mean, it was, it was awful. And a lot of that came down to ego and, and just unfortunately, you know, not, not a good person. Um, and it was really an eye opener for me because looking back, I was like, Oh, well, partnerships are supposed to be good. And this one is, beyond bad it's it's nightmarish and but I had just been so fortunate earlier in my career but so I, I have been through really bad partnerships I have been much more cautious about things since that point because it was a it was an eye-opener for me but I would say one of the really common misconceptions is that you know founders any of the constituencies around a founder so if you're a CEO and a founder of a company over time, as you grow, it's very likely that you're going to have four or five, you know, six different constituencies that, that matter, right? It's employees and business partners and board members and advisors and investors and spouses. It's really, really common to get out of alignment with one or many of those constituencies. And so it's, it's really lonely. I, I'm, I mean, honestly, it's one of the hard things about being an entrepreneur is sometimes if you're an entrepreneur, you're conflicted with most of the people around you, not for anything bad, just that you're seeing things differently. You have different goals and dreams and thoughts, and that becomes a really tough place to be. And so I actually, one of the things I've, you know, kind of learned, learned it from my father and something he was doing, and I've kind of translated it into some of the things I work on now. And it's basically focusing on alignment, you know, just how you communicate, how you get people on the same page, how you identify gaps and points of conflict, particularly as it relates to exits. Because if you, you know, when we sold our very first company, there ended up being three technically, you know, partners or principals in the, in the ownership group, the cap table. And we had kind of three different plans and outcomes. And, and I always say to people, it is perfectly acceptable to have a different outcome but it is not okay to not be on the same page. Meaning if I say, Hey, 
Gary, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to stick around with the company that's buying us? Do you want to leave? Do you need cash to pay back some debt? Do you want to take equity in the new deal? They don't, we don't have to have the same deal. We just have to have alignment around what that outcome is going to be. And so it's a big communication challenge for most founders and entrepreneurs. And I'm just a proponent of doing it, you know, early and often to kind of keep fighting back into alignment because it's, again, it's really common. Gary said it jokingly about his wife. I mean, you know, you might have a spouse that looks at a partnership different than your, you might have an investor that's pushing you to like partner up with someone and your spouse at home, which is really important to you is not feeling the same way. And all these different, you know, people around you matter and they influence you. So that alignment is, is really important. And it's not always been flawless for us. You know, we've definitely had plenty of challenges and mistakes, but at the end of the day, we've generally been able to sort of wrestle into alignment and, you know, do the right thing and kind of, you know, get on the same page. How have you, uh, Go for it, Gary. yeah, just to dovetail that just a bit, uh, communication is always one of the top two issues in every company, it seems like, and communication yep. firms seem to be the worst about it. <laughs> but, um, so you have to be extremely intentional about that. You know, early on, you know, you, you were learning about that. How, how do you um, coach somebody now that's entering into that entrepreneurial journey for the first time or somebody that's been there? but has still struggled with the communication part of that. How do you push for that alignment uh, among the key constituents? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I always joke around with people and say, you know, I could go into any company in the world and seem like I am a, uh, you know, a, a fortune teller because I can say, I bet one of your big problems is communications. And I bet it's also expectation setting and, you know, and everybody's like, Oh my God, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, that's everyone's problem. Um, so you're right, expect or uh, communication, very common issue. When I'm coaching, you know, younger, younger in, doesn't have to be age, younger in the journey, right? So first time founders, whatever. Um, one of the things I always talk about is, is really just changing the perspective. And it's, it's hard for us to do in some cases. But, you know, I, for example, sit down with young employees, early employees in our companies, even interns that join our ventures. And I sit down with them and talk about what their goals and dreams are, because what it allows me to do, it gets me in their minds, whether they care about, what are they saying to me? And if someone said, Hey, I want to be, I'll give you a real world example, an engineer uh, who joined one of our companies as an unpaid intern we had this conversation and very early on, he said, I want to not only be the CEO, I want to like start my own company. I was like, wow, that's a pretty big step from where you're sitting, but I'm, I'm excited for you. So from that second, I was able to say, all right, well, listen, you're in a specific group within our company. In order for you to get the skills you need to go start your own business, we got to expose you to finance. We got to expose you to customer service. We need you to be on the capital raise kind of dialogue. All those things are important components of you being a successful CEO. So if I help you get there, here's what I need from you, right? And so I've kind of flipped the conversation to, I'm going to help you get to your goals. And now we can focus on aligning them back to what matters to me as the founder of this company. What are the KPIs I care about? And can this person affect them? What's the role that I need him to play? And you know, how do I measure that? 
And the more he is seeing that I'm truly invested in his success, the more he's going to contribute. And, and if, I, if we get out of alignment, he's more likely to bubble it up to my attention, right? Versus getting frustrated and getting pissed off. And, you know, that particular story, I won't, I won't give you the name, but, you know, the guy's a CEO of a venture-backed company right now, you know, and he started with me as a unpaid intern. I mean, he's an amazingly talented guy. And I've had that happen a few times, not because I'm gifted or good in any particular way, but just, you know, listening to people and thinking, gosh, if I can help you get what you're trying to get here, we can get to a really mutual beneficial relationship. If I don't know where you're going, then I'm constantly guessing and wondering, and we might be out of alignment and I wouldn't even know it. So that's, that's just one of the things that I think has been helpful. Ben, before you take the, the, the next question, cause I know you've got one. I want to just point out one thing that I think is really critical that you just mentioned there. And that is you asked, you, you had to have a listening ear and a willing heart to ask and then a heart to help realize that. I, I've seen, I've had business partners actually that when we asked the same question that you asked and we had a, an employee that said, well, I want to own my own thing. As part of the interview process, one of my partners said, well, we aren't going to hire that guy. I'm like, exactly. what? <laughs> well, because he's going to go out and do his own, like, but so what? Yeah. <laughs> they they aren't cattle. We don't own them. Right. <laughs> so, so, it's so, so short-sighted. So true. Yeah, yeah I've had that. True. I've had that happen even within my, you know, companies. People that are very, you know, smarter than me, good business partners of mine. That that just for a moment have we've heard similar things. You know, when we've when we've opened up to ask questions about people on the team or maybe people interviewing for jobs and. And their reaction was, you know, maybe similar, like, well, I'm not going to invest anything in someone that's telling me now that they're going to turn around and leave. And I'm like, everybody's going to leave. Let's make it a mutual beneficial. I, I can probably get a lot more out of someone that we both know they're going to leave. And I can, I can appeal to them a lot more to say, hey, if you'll stick around for the next six months and really help me through these things, not only while I help you transition, I'll be your best reference. But like, but you're now working together versus like your paths are separating. So yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of that. I, I tell people all the time, like, I don't want people to leave me hanging. You know, I want people to be transparent with me about leaving, but let's get on the same page about them leaving. Let, let me be an advisor for their next company. Let me be an investor. I mean, I want to be a part of people's journey. So let's just make it, you know, mutual. Yeah. And, and employees are really only sticking with companies for two, three years right now, as it is on an average anyway. So if you right. have that up front and know what their end goal is, they can be infinitely more valuable inside of your business because everybody's aligned. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ben, I'll, I'll kick it over back to you, but that that's a huge nugget. If nobody makes it past this point in the podcast, take some notes on that one. <laughs> You know, ask the questions and have a heart to help somebody that is in a low position realize their dreams and uh, you both win. Very true. So Mac, earlier you said you've got five or less things that, that you do really well. And I think one of the, the big categories anyway, maybe not a skill, but a category that people associate with you is is exiting, right? Being able to have successful exits yourself, but I think more importantly now is also being able to teach people 
how to set themselves up and give them the option to if they ever want to, right? It's not even that it needs to be in their plans, but it's another feather in their cap. So I want to talk about um, why that is for you, right? So why have you gone and built and then sold six companies versus the idea you hear a lot of times of, hey, I'm going to build this one brand and I'm going to stick with it for my whole career and just keep growing the same thing. So, so I guess I, I want to learn why for you that that was the route you took. Yeah, I think, um, I think there are different types of entrepreneurs, you know, to some degree, there are entrepreneurs who are, they, they create a business, you know, it's, it's a dream, they start a company, it is their baby, it is their vision, it's tied to their identity, you know, they are the president of, you know, fill in the blank, that's who they are, right? And for me, for a lot of reasons, I think I have been more interested in, in business. You know, I just really get the energy of building something and scaling something and, you know, kind of turning the dials and figuring things out. Like that's what really motivates me. I, I've been fortunate that some of my companies, many of my companies have been, you know, areas of passion. I'm not pursuing money. I mean, I'm pursuing a business that I'm really excited about. I really want to fix a problem or I really want to create a new opportunity. So it's important to me. It's valuable to me. I did not build it to flip it or sell it, but I believe very philosophically to the core that if you design a business that is full of strategic value, you're going to have the opportunity to sell it. You're going to get offers. You're going to create a market for your company. And if you are not tied to that business, um, you know, you can sell it. You can always, you, that's why the option is so important. You don't have to sell it. You get to, or you can. And another factor that's really, you know, I work with, with founders on this a lot is, is when you look at all of the different factors, which go into helping uh, an entrepreneur decide if, and when they would sell one of the biggest predictors, even though it's not necessarily the most important factor, one of the biggest predictors is if they already know what they're going to do next. If you know, and it could be anything, right? It could be, I want to be a philanthropist. I want to play golf for the rest of my life. I want to, you know, or I have another company I want to start. If you already know what's next, the chances of you getting to a successful exit, feeling good about it, not looking back is really high. If you don't know the answer to that, that's when people don't kind of move forward. And that's where I, you know, was a little bit different is like, I was always itching you know, I had nine things I was ready to do and I was just waiting to get this one sold or up to a certain level so I could go do those things. And, and that's just sort of this, you know, for me personally, this passion around entrepreneurship and building things. But, you know, the other thing, to be fair, you know, my exits were all a variety of situations. You know, they were some I sold because I got an offer that I could not have possibly refused. You know, um, first company was, you know, I'm in my twenties and it's an eight figure exit. And it's, it's like how, how I didn't expect it. And how could you ever say no to that? And then, you know, my next company ended up being a great outcome, but it was, you know, dot-com bubble burst as I'm holding a term sheet for $15 million venture capital investment and the world sort of imploding. So now I have to go from like, you know, I have this amazing opportunity to like, I hope I can keep it alive or sell it. And we, again, 
thankfully we had another eight figure exit. We returned really well to investors, but it was, but I had to sell. We didn't have the money to keep it alive during this dot com, you know, crash. So over those years, you know, variety of things sort of bubbled up good and bad that said, now's the time to sell. Now you need to sell. You can sell and have a maximum value. There's other companies that I sold that, you know, for me personally, or for my investors or mentors were not the outcome I wanted. I mean, it was still on paper. It's great. You sell for seven figures, sell for eight figures, but, but it, you know, the market, the dynamics around things, I think a lot of people miss that stuff, you know, and I, and I've been preaching, it's ironic now, I've been preaching to the founders I'm working with within my exit DNA program that macroeconomics and industry dynamics are some of the factors. And pre COVID, I think people thought I had lost my mind and I'm talking about recessions and IPO arbitrage. And they were like, you know, the market's on fire. I'm like, but it won't be at some point. (laughs) And it needs to be part of your consideration. If you go into a recession, you need to either be able to sell before the recession or feel like the recession is strategic where you can grow market share and you can withstand the recession and come out stronger. A lot of people are caught off guard, go into a recessionary environment or like, Oh, I guess I should have sold and I don't have the money to keep going. So I, I, not that I've done it always right, but I am always looking at all the variables within my industry, within the macroeconomic environment and trying to form a thesis on, if and when I sell. And when those things line up, it's like, you know, I can't hit the exit door fast enough. So. Yeah. So you hit on a great point that is extremely relevant now, right? With, with COVID, with the recession, things like that. And also the timeline, right? You don't have control over when this timeline moves on to another bull market. So what are some of the things that you're doing or saying right now with the owners and entrepreneurs that you're working with to where this can be a strategic point and they can, make a move they need to make or make a pivot or, or really come out of it stronger than ever. What are some of those conversations like right now? Yeah. So one of the things I, I like when Gary said, you know, if you don't, you know, take anything else away or if you don't make it any further in this podcast, one thing I would say maybe the most important point um, in the exit process and exit thinking is I believe so fundamentally that you should never sell a company on a financial metric. You should not sell a company for, six times EBITDA or 1.2 times revenue or whatever, the real valuable exits are based almost exclusively on strategic value. Now you might be able to reverse engineer and say, oh, that company sold for and put a metric on it. But if you look at the big ones, you look at Yammer or Tumblr or WhatsApp, these, these companies that are sold in the billions of dollars, none of those companies even though they'll say it was for 85 times revenue or like WhatsApp was $19 billion exit with almost no revenue. Like there's no metric known to man that justifies it. Those are not financial deals. Those deals are based on strategic value. So the way I like to think about it and help entrepreneurs is make sure that you're designing and not only designing strategic value, but that you can package it up and articulate it in a way that the market is identifying you have created something powerful and unique. And so in the middle of this absolutely horrific pandemic, you know, I have multiple, I have one uh, client in my exit DNA program right now that's going to have a $200 million plus exit because they are so strategically valuable in the e-commerce space at a time when retail is a question mark and 
all these other wholesale strategy or question mark, but they have absolutely carved out a strategic model with some nice intellectual property that anybody that would look at the space would say, I need what this company has. And that's where the real powerful exits are. So rather than not, not that you want to lose money, I'm not saying don't care about your financials, but that's when, you know, you can use a recessionary environment to say, Hey, let's build some real strength. Let's, let's create a customer list that's really unique while other people are fumbling to, you know, deal with reopening. Let's really focus on something that's strategically valuable. Because when I look back over my companies, I had six exits, never sold on a financial multiple of any kind. I could tell you, you know, well, maybe technically they paid us X million and we had revenue and again, re reverse engineer it. But, you know, NBC Sports bought Kick because of exclusive agreements we had. They bought Kick because of uh, exclusive and, and proprietary software. You know, Mountain Khakis was sold to Remington because Remington was looking to get in the outdoor industry, which is another powerful outcome, right? If you sell within your industry, which is the natural path that most founders take is I've got a $5 million company. I want to sell my business. I find a larger version of myself. The powerful exits are when someone outside the industry tries to enter the space that you're in. You know, Google buys a division of Motorola, not because they need revenue or EBITDA. They need to be in the handset business and Motorola has handsets. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time helping founders sort of think through is where is the strategic value in your business? And then how can you articulate that to the market who would value that at a premium? That's kind of the whole you know, process in my mind. Um, I want to add uh, another question into that uh, with an observation. So the, the observation is um, in all of those cases, um, it seems to me like you made yourself not the center of the wheel because all roads leading to you, that means, hey, everything's dependent upon me. And so you better be there for the next three years of transition or, or else. Yep. It seems to me like you were able to create value, create strategic value, but where all roads weren't leading to Mac Lackey and Mac Lackey's on the podium uh, for this deal, correct? Correct. So how did you, um, did you do that on purpose? And, and if so, great. And even if you didn't do that on purpose, how did you orchestrate it to where you weren't the center of the wheel and all roads were leading to you? Yeah, that's a fair question. And I, I think it's, again, a common issue for founders, particularly small, you know, early stage, high growth companies where the founder or the CEO or whoever's in that leadership position is, you know, everything runs through them and they're, there's material and critical and everything that happens in the business. Well, that has a bunch of negatives in my opinion, right? So in hindsight, uh, it's easier to see, but I, I did it throughout my, my sort of career because I was trying to create scale in my companies and freedom for myself. And in order to do that, there's no way I could be in the critical path of every decision or I couldn't go home at night and have dinner with my daughter, right? And so a lot of what happened in our construction of companies and the models was because we were sort of saying, all right, this, 
this needs to be about strategic value and the strategic value is not Mac. It's not this person or that person. It is a unique process. It's a proprietary agreement. It is a, you know, technology offering. It is, you know, software, it's processes and strategic things that those things exist outside of people. Now people might enable them. People might, you know, sell them or whatever, but, but that's a huge benefit of, a lot of what I teach now is, is looking at your company through the lens of a prospective buyer. And one of the questions you ask yourself with every major decision in the company, even if you don't want to sell it, a buyer would be, you should be looking at it saying, does this increase or decrease dependency on me personally? And as a founder, if it is increasing dependency on you, you're starting to compound the negative, right? Like you have less freedom, the business is less scalable because you're going to slow it down. Just the fact, even if you're incredibly talented, you're still a human and you will slow it down and you will definitely line yourself up so that you're going to be signing a 10 year employment agreement when you sell your company. So the fact that those things all work in concert, I looked at it the opposite and said, all right, well, every time I hire a talented person, it decreases dependency on me. Every time I take some harebrained idea I have about how to do something and turn it into a, standard operating procedure that is repeatable without me, I have reduced dependency on me. So, so the cascading benefits, they ultimately materialize in an exit, right? But, but we were doing it and I do it to this day because I want to reduce the friction of me being in that grind. And my very last company that I, I exited, I mean, it was almost to an extreme of, you know, the I was the largest shareholder. I was, you know, the chairman. I was all these things, but they literally had no idea if and when I was even going to be in the office. I mean, they, they never knew. I mean, so, so try to design the business so that, you know, Mac may or may not show up for this meeting. Who's going to run the meeting? Mac may or may not respond to this email. Who is going to respond? And so by doing that, it just forces the organization to elevate to a level that decreases dependency and moves faster. So I, I think it kind of works in, in concert. That's good stuff, man. <laughs> Every CEO in the world needs to hear that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so let's dive in, because uh, we're trending in this direction anyway, let's dive into some of what you're, you're doing now, right? So Let's begin with the Phoenix, describe what that is, and then we'll, then we'll go a little bit further, and then we'll get into exit DNA as well. Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, after my, I had my sixth exit in October 2018, the path of, of least resistance for me was, you know, kind of, as always, I had two or three ideas that I was kind of interested and excited to pursue, and I thought I may start some other companies. But for the first time, um, I really just decided to, take time and think about what I wanted to do. And, and part of that process was really just giving my mind a breather to say, even though this idea sounds cool, you know, is it what I really want to do? And so I took kind of a rare breather. And during that breather, a couple things happened. And the, the specific things which I can talk about led to two very um, distinct and important programs, if you will. The first was ironically, um, my mentor who, you know, means a, a great deal to me. He and I were sitting in a coffee shop and, 
And I was having this, you know, almost like weak moment because I, you know, I trust him and I, I, I care for him. And I was saying, you know, that I, I have had these different forms of success and people have different views of me. So, you know, why would I put my name or neck on the line anymore? Because all it stands to do is erase any good things that have happened. Like people think, oh, Max been successful or Max had these exits or whatever they would say. And then if my next company blows up, it's like, oh, well, you know, Mac failed, right? Forget all the other stuff, Mac failed. And he had this amazing grin on his face when I was saying it. And he said, you know, Mac, it's, you know, I'm seeing this vision of the Phoenix. Do you remember the Greek mythology of every time, you know, the Phoenix would sort of burn to ashes, it would rise again. And he said, you know, that's been your whole life and career. I mean, you, you didn't have the pedigree or skill set to start your first company. You were kicked out of college. You figured out a way to get kicked out of one college and go to the next and graduate with honors. And you, you know, you've been reinventing and rising from the ashes. And he was telling this story to me about my own like fears and shortcomings. And it was just like, you know, as always with him, his thoughts were so powerful over the next couple of days. It just was like this powerful moment. I said, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to help other entrepreneurs that are going to with an absolute exclamation point, whether they have or not, they are going to get stuck in the grind. They're going to crash and burn. They're going to struggle. They're going to hit the glass ceiling. And I want to be um, helping them rise. I want to help them kind of reinvent themselves and, and kind of blow through the glass ceilings that hold people down. And so that was kind of the motivation. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but ultimately it sort of became this online community much bigger than me. It's not, you know, me, it's called the Phoenix, uh, F E N X. And, um, that's the whole idea is, is I built the community that I wish I would have had when I was a 26, 27, 32, 33 year old entrepreneur trying to figure out for the first time how to deal with partnership issues, how to raise money, how to sell a company, how to recover from an absolute, you know, financial disaster. Um, I didn't have those people around me. So I built it and uh, I'm really, you know, I'm really excited. It's been a lot of fun. It's just getting going, but that's basically, it's a, it's a community for founders that sort of buy in this philosophy that, that not only um, will you join because you want someone to help you rise and reach your full potential, but you in turn are going to reach back and grab other people that are a little bit lower on the totem pole and pull them up as you go. And so that's kind of what I was setting out to do with the Phoenix and, uh, yeah, so far it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, it's been really rewarding. Yeah. So one of the, the big takeaways from it, at least for me is you put this emphasis on escaping the grind and finding the freedom in your life. And we'd already mentioned earlier how you talked about making sure that your priorities in your own life were, were aligned correctly. And, and it's something you don't hear talking, people talking about a lot, especially to early entrepreneurs, right? The 27, the 30 year old, things like that. It's instead put your nose down and, and go grind. Yep. Um, why is that such an important piece for you to, to get people to understand that they don't need to just put their head down and ignore the, their family or their friends or their priorities. And they can instead figure out some sort of structure or system to have that balance. It's amazing. Uh, I appreciate your question. It's cra it's crazy. I mean, it almost feels like it's <laughs> disingenuous. I get like I was getting chills as you were saying it, just because I 
it's still so visceral for me. But, um, you know, the, the quick story, you know, basically there was a, there was about a 30 day period in my life that I would say like the all time high and all, all time low happened in a very compact, uh, moment. And it was, it was effectively July, mid to late July of, of 2000. I sold that second company, you know, second eight figure exit. I'm in my twenties. I feel like I'm on top of the world. I've got nothing but like great opportunities ahead of me in my mind. And, um, less than a month later, my, my first daughter was born. And as she was being born, I remember being in the hospital and she was, you know, healthy and great. And I was so excited. And, but I, you know, I looked at this little baby and I said, you know, I'm going to be an amazing dad. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for everything. And the reason it was meaningful me at, at that time was, you know, my father, who's, who's been, you know, an incredible father was a, you know, third shift engineer and was working really hard to provide for our family and get us out of our, you know, the level that we were living at. And, so he couldn't be there for all my soccer games and all the things. And he wanted to be, he was a great dad, but I wanted that, you know, for my daughter, I wanted to coach her teams and carve the class pumpkins. And so the reason I say that it was the worst is because, you know, I'm looking back over my career thus far at this young age and going, you know, I've been successful by these measures, but I also was working 80, 90 hours a week and I was sleeping on the floor in the office and my wife would call me and say, I haven't seen you in two days. You need to come home. And I'm thinking, how am I going to be a great dad when I can't, I can't even manage my, you know, I'm just working all the time. That's all I do. And so I, I got really depressed and, and basically to, to, you know, kind of cut to the chase, I made a decision that ran counter to what every single person I talked to at that moment in my life said, which is, you just have to choose, right? Mac, you're going to have to choose. You can, you can continue to be an entrepreneur, but you're going to have to be heads down in the office building companies and your daughter will be young. So she won't even know. And then maybe one day, you know, you'll, you'll be able to have the freedom or vice versa. You can be that dad, but you, you know, you'll have to stop being a scale entrepreneur. So I made a decision in August, 2000 that I absolutely refused to accept the trade-offs. I just wasn't going to do it. I had no idea how I was going to change it. I didn't know what was going to make that possible. I just basically made a commitment that I'm not going to do it. And the reason it's, it's visceral is because 19 years, almost to the day, August of 2019, I dropped my daughter off for her freshman year at NYU. And I look back over those 19 years and two things happened. I built and sold four more companies and I never missed a donuts for dad. I carved every damn pumpkin and coached every class and came home for dinner and so the, the decision that I made, and then I hear all these people that I respect, I mean, they're smart, but you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and all these people that are screaming from the rooftops about hustle and grind and put in the time. And one day, like one day you're going to look back and you're going to have missed. And I just wasn't going to do it. And so I feel very personally drawn to not only sharing the message, like don't accept the trade-offs, but more importantly, like you don't have to, as a matter of fact, by choosing to design your businesses and your life in this way, they actually get more efficient. Gary said it. I mean, CEOs stereotypically think they need to be in the middle of everything. They think they're the best salesperson, the best engineer, the best, the best, the best. And, and that's fine because that's probably what got them to the level of success they're at. And yet 
it is the thing that will prevent them from scaling and getting to the next level and getting to the ultimate outcomes. And so now that I've seen all that, that 19 year experiment, which happened to be my life, um, you know, I just, yeah, I'm super passionate about it. And I want to help people do it differently. Yeah. It's such an important lesson to be told too, because when you hear the opposite time and time again, most people feel like it, it is a trade-off. They have to choose one or the other. They can't have both. And it's, it's just such a myth that most people blindly buy into. No question. Yeah, I, I want to do a, a, a pregnant pause on that one thing because um, I heard this from my millennial son, the, the shoe designer, um, you know, that whole hustle culture. Um, COVID has kind of put a big question mark on that. Um, and it, it'll wear you out. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen older uh, entrepreneurs, older than me, older than you, I'm, I'm the oldest one on this one, um, that um, got to the end and said, to what end was this? You know, For sure. with lots of regrets, you know, they, they had all the trappings and all the stuff that said success and they wondered to what end. And I, I like the, what you said, which is, it, it really is a yes and. There's gotta be a way to create a yes and versus an either or. And yeah, you, that's you're right. a great example of being able to do that. You know, you can say, hey, I didn't miss a donuts for dads or whatever that is. <laughs> and, and yet you still were able to have success that most people can't even dream of. And, um, and so I really appreciate that. So, you know, put, put this one in at, uh, you know, 40 minutes or 50, 50 minutes into this broadcast. Yep. <laughs> so. Well, and I, and I, you know, I'm always quick to say, I mean, you know, if you, if you look, I appreciate you saying that. I feel really strongly about it. I think it's really important. It's not to ever imply that it's easy, right? You just make a choice and like it all clicks. And it's also, you know, if I look back over those 25 years and various, you know, decisions, I mean, tons of mistakes, tons of problems, challenges, things I wish, you know, would have turned out differently. I regret, you know, it's not like it's flawless by any means, but I think you hit the nail on the head, which is I knew of the various trade-offs and outcomes, the one I was not willing to make is that entrepreneur that looks back and says, to what end? I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many things you've done. If your kids don't, you know, know you, if your spouse leaves you, if your health deteriorates, all, you know, all things that absolutely can happen. If you choose to let's just focus on the grind. And unfortunately, even those that focus on the grind, that doesn't even ensure the outcome, right? So it's like, it's, it's a trade-off that you shouldn't make anyway but the trade-off still doesn't even guarantee you get there. As a matter of fact, the odds are still stacked against you. So I just think this is a message that, that needs to get out. And, you know, we've, we've done some things within the Phoenix, you know, that, that are trying to give people very tactical, actionable examples of how you can do things differently. Doesn't mean you're going to snap your fingers and it's all going to change, but at least you have some strategies to say, Hey, here's how I might reset up my, environment. This is how I might reset up communications with my company to change the way I work. And you, you, you know, it's funny, COVID 
I, Gary knows where I live. I, you know, I look out my window. I have had the luxury of, you know, building a home office and working out of my home. And there, there are people, mostly men, but I, there are people that live a couple doors down from me that I honestly didn't even know lived in my neighborhood because I've never seen them before and they were never home. And now they're out walking with their kids and walking the dog. And I'm so happy for them. I'm mean, like, this is great. But I'm thinking, what are they normally doing? Like, why would they not be doing that anyway? You know? And so it's a really interesting time. Hopefully a lot of people are recalculating and rethinking based on what's happening in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. It can open up a lot of eyes that you just didn't know this was an option. And all of a sudden you're getting the same stuff done and you get to take a walk with the family and exactly. you get to have those things too. Yeah. Before we move into uh, exit DNA and what that's all about, uh, I, I do want to give a plug for the Phoenix cause I, have joined it and and it's it's a fun group of people uh, and I think it's a really cool um, thing to just uh, have other entrepreneurs that have some of the same questions or maybe at different parts of their journey but uh, where you you break down some of that isolation that can happen when you are an entrepreneur when you're running a company, it is the loneliest seat in the, in, in the organization. There's no doubt about it. Um, talk about exit DNA, if you would. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, you know, post that last exit, there were really two things, you know, one was this conversation with my mentor that led to the Phoenix. The other was, was kind of different and interesting, but I, you know, because of the focus I had on those two very distinct things over my career, you know, it was basically work, and family. I was heads down. So, you know, the last decade of my kind of working career, I didn't go to events. I didn't participate in masterminds or forums or anything. I was really just heads down on those two things. And so uh, I got asked to speak at this event shortly after my last exit. And they asked me to speak about exits. And I said, sure. I showed up. Uh, it was a group of entrepreneurs, pretty successful entrepreneurs from around the world. And I was up on stage sort of typical style, you know, I hadn't really prepared much. And I was just talking about my experiences, mistakes made, things that I would recommend people avoid and things that I did that I thought worked out, you know, particularly well that I would do more of. I walk off the stage and I'm not a great speaker. So I just was like, I'm just sharing the story. And I walk off the stage, like seven or eight founders almost like jog up to me and say, you know, I really need your help. And come to find out there were two things that were going on. One is my message, probably because of some of the things we've talked about today, resonated with these entrepreneurs who were very successful, but were definitely living in the grind of their companies. And the other is that the things that I was talking about in terms of how they could optimize the option to exit their company, if and when they wanted in the future, were things they had never heard before, because they were talking to their CPAs and their attorneys, all of which are very important part of the process. And they were talking to their M&A advisors and bankers, but all those people were talking about their EBITDA and margins. And I was sharing these stories about strategic value and finding unique buyers and moving across industries. And, and they just said, we've never heard any of that before. And so at that moment, I realized, you know, gosh, I have a unique set of experience because that's, what happened in, in sort of the body of work. My six exits, not one was based on a financial multiple. I sold to public companies. I sold to private companies. I sold to American owned 
and internationally owned businesses. So I, and I sat on the board of a you know, public company for a number of years doing acquisitions on the buy side. I've been a angel investor in 50 you know, plus companies. So it was like, all of a sudden I'm like, man, I have this really unique perspective and the people that need it the most are these founders who are not hearing any of this stuff. And so long story short, I was like, you know, I, I really can help people there. I create a program called Exit DNA, which is helping people take these philosophies and concepts that I've, you know, kind of honed over the years, weaving them into their strategy so that they can really create that option. And it's been powerful. I mean, I, I, I'm probably getting as much out of it as, you know, our, our members or clients do because I'm having so much fun working with these amazing founders that are, you know, building companies of all different sizes, all different industries, all over the place. So it's removed me from the kind of the echo chamber, you know, something else Gary said a moment ago that, that I love about the Phoenix is if you're sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina, which I've spent a lot of my life here, it's a great city. It's an amazing city, but just like Silicon Valley or New York or any other place, if, if your life is in that particular bubble, it's a self-reinforcing bubble, good or bad. And all of a sudden you bring in people from all over the world, different companies, different industries, different perspectives, and it just amplifies like, wow, that's, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before because entrepreneurs in Charlotte don't talk about that. I spent over an hour today on the phone with company owners in Nebraska sharing exit DNA kind of stuff because one of the people that organized this event is in my program. And the questions they were asking were like, wow, that's a great, like, you know, they're dealing with manufacturing companies and farming and, you know, real estate that's based on farmland and acreage and like, wow, those are great questions. I mean, so a lot of the motivation for me was I want to help people. I think I'm in a, you know, unique position to share things that work for me. And uh, it's been, yeah, it's been really, really rewarding. So that's, that's kind of what I do within Exit DNA is teach that stuff, but I also bring in all of the experts in my own life and they, they come in to help my companies, these, these founders that are in Exit DNA with intellectual property, with financial structure, with branding, with storytelling, all those things that, man, if I could rewind back and be, you know, a 29 year old getting exposed to someone telling me how to do all this stuff at, at the absolute highest level, it would have been really awesome. And I, you know, I feel very fortunate that I have had the journey that I have, but a lot of it was in isolation or with my very small group of founders and advisors uh, or partners and advisors versus this, you know, global community of, of entrepreneurs that I now get to spend time with. It's really, really been cool. So I know we're getting up towards, towards the end of time. So I want to make sure I get a couple final questions in at least. The first one is going to be around scaling, right? Because you, you do a lot and talk a lot about helping people scale businesses. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see when working with entrepreneurs around uh, scaling? And, and what are some of those solutions you've helped them figure out? You know, I think, um, yeah, scaling is, is one of those aspirational objectives for so many founders and entrepreneurs. And, and sadly, it's pretty elusive. I mean, if you look at the stats, it's actually really, really discouraging the, how few companies ever get, you know, it's like 4% of all companies ever get past two and a half million in revenue, yeah. 1% ever get to 10 million. And, and like you would, that's just shocking to me. Um, but that's just the fact. And so scaling is, is not simple, but looking back um, in my 
particular set of experiences and, and then learning from a lot of really impressive people that I think have done it well. I think scaling does come down to a few very specific things. Every industry is unique. Every company is unique. But some of the powerful stuff is, um, I've heard this quote, and I probably would butcher it, but first time founders focus on product, second time founders focus on distribution. I didn't know that quote when I was building my companies, but it's really interesting looking back that like the powerful thing that led to scale was almost always my ability to find a distribution channel for my product or service that was not only powerful, but proprietary. And so, you know, if I found someone who had an ability to take my message or my product to a much larger market, that became a differentiator and a driver of scale and a lot of other good things. So now I, I spend a lot of time with founders saying, you know, how can we create really unique and powerful distribution? So that's a big driver of scale. Um, you know, I do think there are, there are things that, you know, you can do in your business to create some inherent virality, if you will, meaning, you know, if you do things well, let's use exit DNA as an example. I mean, right now I am not a great promoter. I haven't done a lot of marketing um, of myself or of the business, but I have a very high degree of when people join exit DNA, they invite their friends and they, you know, do the marketing for me. And so if you start amplifying that out, it's like my cost of customer acquisition is, you know, almost zero. And every time I bring someone in, it's amplifying at times 10 of their friends. And so if I find something like that, then it is, okay, well, how can I extend that? How can I use marketing? How can I use podcasts? How can I use social media to take what was a one to 10 ratio and make it 10 to a hundred? You know, maybe it's taking that same testimonial that one of my customers would have said to their friends in a tightly, you know, held group and putting it out on social media to a targeted audience. All of a sudden I've amplified my message. So, you know, there are clear, clearly plenty of things you can do on a marketing and, and um, kind of growth side of scale. But the big ones for me are distribution and um, finding amazing people. And, and the way to think about that is if you want to build a $10 million company, let's say you're at 2 million, you want to build a two or $10 million company in um, the supplement space and you need, a, you need a chief marketing officer. The chief marketing officer you hire not is not a talented marketing person. It is someone that has not once, but more than once built a $10 million supplement company. They've already been where you're trying to go. That to me is the real power. And so it's not unlike what I say in exit DNA It's like, Hey, I'm not, you know, saying I'm the world's, you know, biggest expert. But if I, if you look at a mountain, you're trying to summit and you can determine that Mac has already summited that specific mountain a few times, you know, I can probably help you get there faster. I can probably tell you the routes to take and things not to do and the equipment to bring and all these different analogies. The same thing is true in every part of your business. If you hire a chief marketing officer, a CFO that can help you rethink your capital structure, you don't hire a friend. You don't hire someone that you know. You hire someone that has already been where you're trying to go and it's catalytic. It's like, it just is like a magnet pulling you to that place. So those are some of the big ones for me anyway. Yeah, no, it's perfect. I, I love that we're finishing this podcast with, with tactics, right? Like people can take 
things like this away and implement it in their businesses right away. So let's keep that theme going, at least for the last one I have. I don't, I'm not sure what, what Gary's got in his mind, but when we're talking about the, uh, the sale of businesses, right, with exit DNA and things like that, what are a couple steps that people who are listening today and they're motivated, they understand, okay, maybe I don't want to exit six months from now, but I want that freedom and the option to be able to. What are a couple steps that they should be taking to be able to get themselves in that position? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say, you know, to, to be brief, because this is, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff, but right. I would say the two or three real high level things, you know, one is really, really shift your thinking to strategic value. You know, what are the things that you are building and have that would potentially be valuable to buyers of your business? Could be your customers, it could be your products, could be your brand, could be your, you know, geographic distribution, whatever it is, starting to create that list and making sure that anything that you think is truly valuable, you're progressing it and you're starting to wrap it up in a way that you can articulate it clearly. If you need to protect it with intellectual property, you do that so that it's really, really yours and not the markets. Um, so a big one is strategic, making sure you're focused on strategic value. The other two, I would probably say, you know, one would be, um, it's like Warren Buffett's eight wonder of the world is compounding interest. You know, little things you do right now will compound into enormous value over time. So go ahead and imagine you're selling your company, go ahead and get your house in order, you know, create a, what they call a deal room, you know, go into Dropbox and create all these folders and get all your stuff organized. You can do it on a Sunday afternoon and get in the discipline of making sure once a month, once whatever the frequency is that you're updating those folders and files as if someone were going to come in tomorrow and say, Ben, I want to buy your company, show me your stuff. And 99% of the world will freak out and go into a two week long scramble of pulling together contracts and employment agreements. If you have done that stuff consistently and, and, you know, just built it over time, it is so easy, but it shocks buyers that you're so organized, you're so professional. So that's another tactical one that I would recommend everybody do. And then probably the last thing that's really, really easy to do, but I think is powerful is if you take a, an hour and you brainstorm, um, let's say you have a list of 10 potential buyers of your company. You have no idea if they're interested. It needs to be at least two, ideally three different industries, right? So, so create a list of 10 companies. It could be big versions, public, private, different industries. And all you're trying to do is come up with the name of the company and have a thought on why they might just theoretically be interested in your company. So that's a list takes you maybe an hour, create a Google alert for those 10 companies so that when they put out press releases or they do earnings releases or their CEO is talking or does a podcast, you get alerted. And for 15 minutes a day, just look at that stuff because what will happen is that 15 minutes a day, you'll wake up in six months and realize that those 10 companies have telegraphed and told you absolutely everything they're trying to build, they care about, is next for them, what their customers want. And you're in a position that you might be able to answer their question, right? How do we get to this place? Oh, I have a product. You've been talking about it in the press for nine months. I built it. So, that simple practice of getting your mind into what would a prospective buyer 
want to see why would I fit into their business over time, you will become a, you know, ninja salesperson at being able to articulate that to anybody that that president of a company could call you and say, Hey, Gary, you know, somebody said I should uh, talk to you about your business and you you're just going to be like off the cuff. Yeah, there's nine reasons you should buy my company. And they're going to be like, what in the world? But you have been lightly listening and studying as they have telegraphed exactly what they care about. And you just yep. you know, off the cuff, you got it. So those are easy things to do that, that add up to a lot of value. Yeah, that, that helps a lot. So I'll, I'll step back. I think Gary's got, got something else on his mind. The only thing I've got on my mind is I hope we have a gazillion people that listen to this because there is a treasure trove of wisdom and, and practical insights um, from a guy that's uh, seen it, done it, and uh, multiple times, just a one-hit wonder. So, Mac, I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. You are anything but typical, and uh, it's an honor to know you. Um, ben, you want to take us to the last part of this? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's perfect. So, Mac, in the show notes, what we'll do for everybody is we'll put uh, – um, like MacLackey.com and links to the Phoenix and, and exit DNA and all that. Is there anything else? Oh, and one other thing that I'll say to all the listeners, Mac had mentioned earlier of taking that mental break after the last exit. And, and he wrote a, a blog or an article on that, which I thought was really interesting just to get some insight from his experience and take from it. Is that still on MacLackey.com? Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. Perfect. So, that, I think that's a, a quick, easy read, but I think it's really interesting that, that a lot of people would gain value in. But, uh, but what else, if any, uh, do you want us linking to? What do you want people taking away from this? Well, I, I appreciate you guys having me. I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm just really motivated mm -hmm. to, you know, help people be on the journey with people. And, uh, it's, you know, I get a lot of energy from it. I, I get a lot of enjoyment from it. So, you know, unfortunately, my I, I wish I had you know, unlimited time. So I've started to, you know, say to people, it's, I wish I could respond to every email. And, and, but if you, you know, whether you join the Phoenix or you, if you're serious and look at, you know, exit DNA, obviously I can work very directly with people, but even otherwise, I mean, just, you know, just engaging on social media and, and, you know, having the dialogue with people, not just me, but people like me that, that really, you know, it's just, if you're on an island, you, you need to pull other people on the island with you. And so that's what I'm, I'm just really trying to, to do at this point. So I, I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, having me and, uh, and anybody that I can help in your audience, I would love to. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mac. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Thank you both.